We have a special guest here to preach. This is Daniel Jansen. Woo woo! Yeah, dude. So Daniel um, is a fan, a friend of our family of churches, and a fan. Oh, okay. We're your fan, dude. Um, so he's uh, he was planted by Anthem uh, Ventura or Anthem Thousand Oaks, and uh, his church is named Imago Day. They are in Downey, which is in southern Cal- southern LA. And uh, he's been there, how long have you been leading that church? Six years. Six years. Flying by. That's crazy. Uh, but yeah, we, we try to, um, when, when weeks when uh, Andy's not preaching or we just don't have anyone nearby, we like to get um, friends that we know and we trust and we love in to, to preach. Um, not just find like the biggest celebrity you can find uh, to bring in, which is what happens sometimes. And um, Daniel is a really amazing uh, preacher, and I think another blessing in having him is just to get, like, another perspective, honestly. You know, like, his gifting, his personality, his experiences are different, and so I know that um, him jumping in on our money series is going to be really helpful, and uh, also money is kind of an awkward thing to preach at, preach about your own church, too, to be fair. So, <laughs> so uh, oh, last thing is that he also preached during COVID, if you remember, um, on, on when we were filming the videos, he drew a really helpful chart of kind of how we expect our life to go that his aunt shared, like up and up and up. Um, but kind of like your life goes up and down, but eventually you're going to be great, you know? And he's like, actually, like the way of a disciple is like lower and lower. Sacrifice, humility, hardship, pain and suffering is what you're going you're gonna to expect. So I kind of want to make that connection because that was like a really um, helpful sermon to me. And just kind of remind you that he's been here before. So I'd love to pray for you, and then you can jump in. Cool. Yeah. Um, Father, so grateful um, for Daniel being here and just being a friend and a blessing um, to, to this church and to our family of churches. Um, grateful for just his laboring um, in the gospel in Downey and um, bringing the gospel to, to his church and, and making disciples. And I pray that you would um, speak through him this morning and just... Um, Help him to, to work through a, a difficult subject um, just with, like, low pressure and to, um, yeah, to preach your word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Royce. Do you guys ever have, like, a friend and then you, uh, when you're, like, in high school or something and you go to your friend's house and they're having a big party? That's a little bit what this feels like for me. Where Andy's been my friend for, like, eight years. We've hung out and done stuff. And uh, we've been planting a church up in... Uh, in southeast LA, and he's like, "Hey, come, come preach." And then he's not, he's not here, and so I'm just kind of like hanging out <laughs> with his family, like, "Hey guys, like, like I'm sure we'll like each other because I we're we're good friends." But that's uh, so it's it's honestly an honor to be here. Um, I did the same church planting residency, like an internship type thing that Andy did before planting Restored Church. Uh, two years after he did that, I, I went to the same church and did the residency there. Uh, preparing to plant Imago Dei, which means image of God in Southeast LA. And as we were uh, getting ready for that, when we moved into the city to begin, my wife and I came down here for this like whirlwind tour. We were here for like 24 hours. That was all we were here for. And we hung out with Andy and at the time Brad, who now planted Restored LA. And then we got to visit uh, one of your guys' gospel communities and hang out in, in that and see kind of what life together looks like. And that 24 hours we spent here like transformed our trajectory as a church. And so you might not know it, but just your guys' life together, the way that you guys have operated has shaped uh, our story and our church in really profound ways. Um, what I love about your leaders and what I love about Restored is your generosity. There's a spirit of genuineness here. Like there's not it's not flash, it's not show, it's just a genuine expectation that God is among us, that he moves, he speaks, he's good, he has something for us, and it's like, that's mind-blowing, and, and so just to sit with that and, and to build around that is actually really beautiful, and I think the integrity of your leaders and of this church, like in our world, things like faithfulness, integrity, genuineness, those are decreasing in value in our world in terms of like how our world values them, which actually makes them only more important. And I, I think that there's going to be, um, that you, you as a church will, will shine as a light into this world 
in a like, really profound way, uh, just through your, your genuineness, through your integrity, through your faithfulness to Jesus. And I was with Andy last night and was even just like challenged all over again of, of my own ministry and my own life of integrity, faithfulness, the long road of following Jesus and what he has for us. So um, as we step into the series, uh, Lavish, and talking about that, uh, I got to read Andy's notes. I guess he told a story last week about a diamond from India. It's uh, <laughs> like, wow, that's a lot. Uh, um, <laughs> it's like, copy-paste from Wikipedia. All right, let's go. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but as I was reading through his notes in the last couple of weeks, I, again, I, I was challenged by Andy's integrity in leading it can be awkward talking about money. I think he likened himself to a PE teacher talking about sex. And uh, I was like, all right. Um, but I love, it's one of those things, again, it's genuine. It's like, at one level, it's like courageous. And then it's also like really not. It's just common sense. It's very simple. It's just saying, hey, here's where we're at with our finances as a church. Here's what's up. Let's open the Bible. Like, what does it say? This is part of life. Let's not be immature about it. Let's just talk about it and have our life shaped by the goodness of God and by Jesus and see what happens and, and just leave that up to him. And I love just the, the bluntness and the integrity of that. And so I want to walk in that this morning just to catch us up because maybe you haven't been here. I haven't been here. Um, the, the first week in this lavish series talked about like motivations behind giving. And there are a lot of motivations behind giving. It can be motivated by guilt right? Like, hey, God's going to be really mad at you if you don't give. Like, he really needs you. What's wrong with you? Like, let's step it up. Uh, it could be greed. Hey, if you give, if you, like, uh, participate in this, then God will have to bless you. And it's this kind of secret way of really building your own desired life is you're kind of using God. But the proper motivation and the motivation that the story of the Bible gives is that of grace, and that's where the, the key word of lavish comes from, is that God has been lavish in his generosity towards you and I. He has not been stingy or uh, like half-handed. It's, uh, the word in Ephesians is lavish in his love. Here's how I define lavish. It's unnecessary, yet purposefully overwhelming in his outpouring of grace and goodness in your life. And when you understand God, uh, John 3, 16, one of the most famous verses, right? God so loved the world he gave. That's just at the heart of the story that we proclaim to the world. It's a story of God himself giving. He is generous. And so God is both our example, right? Because he's, he's given his very self. There's nothing that he's held back. He gave his son. He gave his life. Uh, but he's not just our example, like a, like a YouTube video of a golf swing or someone baking something where you're like, wow, you did that really well, but I, I don't know how to do that. It, it, it's not just an example that he gives. He actually supplies our strength. That's how he motivates us. When we understand the grace of God, you realize every need is supplied. He's not holding back from you. God is not, has, he's not like faking you out. And, and really holding back something bad for you, or he's withholding what you really need. He's given you his very self. There's nothing that he's holding back from you. And when you understand that, then you have this freedom where you say, I can't lose. I am free uh, to give. And then last week, talked about this idea of stewardship. That motivation of grace is girded or strengthened by an understanding that if it's all grace— like, if you don't deserve blessing, but God is just kind, you didn't earn it. It's not naturally yours because you're strong enough, but God is kind and he's uh, lavish. If that's the, the case, then you actually don't own anything. It's all a gift of grace, and that makes you a steward, not an owner. You, you are facilitating what is properly God's, and that's how we ought to approach all of our life is understanding that we are stewards, which leads us to today, which is okay. If it's grace, that's my motivation. If I'm a steward, I'm not an owner. Like, how do I understand stuff, right? Like, like my life, my giving, my spending, saving. Like, when I think through these different categories about money, 
if I were to, like, what's the framework? If I was trying to, like, articulate a positive vision of, like, what I'm supposed to do or how I'm supposed to understand this, where do I begin? So it's almost like grace is our motivation. I don't own it. So then what are we doing here? What is this realm? What is this category? What is our giving? That's kind of the question I want us to consider this morning. What is our giving? Like, what category even is that? And I'll give you the answer out the gate if you're a note taker, right? I'm not going to hide this from you. The, the answer out the gate, it's very simple. It's this, is that giving is an act of worship. Giving is an act of worship. All of our interactions, all of your interactions with money, with things, possessions, they are an expression of your worship, what you love, what you treasure, what you value, what you believe in. All your interactions with money and possessions are an expression of worship. And this should be no surprise. I don't th- hopefully I didn't catch anyone like crazy off guard there. We're like, whoa. Like, like, no, that's actually like maybe obvious, but if, even if not that, it's a consistent theme in the scriptures. If you're at all familiar with the Bible, and if you're not, that's okay, but this is a consistent teaching in the Bible. We're going to get to Matthew 6 in a second. That's our passage. But I've been teaching my kids uh, something called the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, which is right up here on the screen. Deuteronomy 6. This was a prayer that the, uh, the people of Israel would, would pray every morning, every day, right? That was kind of shaped their understanding of the world that God gave them in the earliest books of the Bible, Deuteronomy 6. It says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your hearts. And that heart is your inner life. That's your, your thoughts, your desires, your will, your, with all your soul, which in the Hebrew conception, the soul is actually your, your physical. It's your body. It's your eyes, your lips, your hands. So what you see, what you speak, what you touch and put your hands to. And then with all your strength, and that word strength is not actually your physical muscle. It has to do with your resources, your stuff your home, your cattle, whatever. Like, and it's this picture, one, of saying, hey, yes, your resources are part of how you worship God. This is from the very beginning, this teaching that they would pray and understand. But then it's also this trajectory from your inside to your body to your stuff. It's this picture that there is nothing in life that is off limits or is not under the category or banner of worship, of love. Everything you do is an expression of what you love, and what you value and treasure most. All of life is worship. All of life is worship, and God alone is worthy of it. So, hopefully I'm not surprising any of you when I'm saying that giving is an act of worship, but we'll turn to our passage today. If you have a Bible, would you open it up to Matthew chapter 6? Matthew chapter 6. I, I know Restored Church well enough to know that this idea that, that life is worship, it's an expression of what you love, those, those are not new ideas, I don't think, that have ever been spoken here. No one's mind is being blown. But in Matthew 6, Jesus gives special attention, special attention to how you think about and use your resources and your money. And out of everything that Jesus could have spoken about in this sort of like framework of all of life is worship, you can think of all the different things he could have spoken about, sexuality and family. And like he, he zeroes in, he spends the most bulk of his time on money, on resources. And so since he gives special attention to that, I think it's worth our giving special attention attention to that at well. And we're going to see a few things as we walk through this. Why is it, right, that money is, is an act of worship? How does that play out in our, in our life, and what are we to do about that, right? So here's the first thing that Jesus teaches. It's this, is that what you do with money is an expression of your heart. What you do with money is an expression of your heart. Here's his teaching in Matthew 6. Uh, beginning in verse 19, Jesus says this. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you do with money is an expression of your heart. Now, now why is that? Why is that the case? It's because we are physical creatures. God made us to work and to keep. That's what it says in Genesis 2.15. He made us to create and to produce and to cultivate. And in a fallen world, in a world that's broken, where we're tempted to find our identity in all sorts of other things outside of God, where we worship creature and build our life around what's like right in front of us rather than creator, that one of the first places, as you would think through your life, one of the first places that you will be tempted to put your trust in is going to be the, the work of your hands. The, the, the comfort and control that you can take from what you have produced and what you have. You think because humanity, we were tasked with cultivating and, and caring for Eden, that now outside of a Eden, outside of God's uh, uh, paradise for us, what happens is we try and create little Edens. And we try and create heaven on earth in our own strength and in our own way. And money and resources, the things that we build and accumulate and buy are ways that you and I create little Edens of comfort, of power, of rest. We're just doing what we've, we're created to do at one level, but just in a fallen and broken way. This, this is not, we're not stepping outside of our humanity as much as we're like, in a degenerate version of it. This is, this is who we are. At Imago Dei, uh, which means image of God, I don't know if I said that, uh, we've been teaching Ecclesiastes, uh, which is this wisdom book, and there's this word there called Havel. And this Hebrew word Havel is this word picture of uh, a vapor, or the idea is almost it's the illusion of substance. So you see something and it looks solid and then the moment you go to grab it, it just like slips through your fingers. And if you've ever read Ecclesiastes, it says everything in life is like that. And Jesus is saying something very similar here. He's saying you create and you build and you spend and you invest your heart, you invest your life on treasures, on experiences, vacations, comforts, gadgets, technologies, homes, safety, status, right? And you take all these things that you've like given yourself to and bought and accumulated, and then you, you put it on the scale to see what does it all like add up to in the end. And if we're just honest, it's this idea of Havel. It's, it's nothing. Moth and rust destroy. Thieves break in and steal. Whatever you, you give yourself to, it, it doesn't last. This is where Jesus is just an amazing, like, teacher where you don't even need special religious knowledge to understand that. If you're here today and you're not a, a Christian, you're not a believer in Jesus, like, you don't need, I mean, we need the Bible as a, as a pastor, I'm going to say that, but you don't need the Bible to, like, get access to Jesus' teaching on that. That what you invest in and build and, and accumulate and buy, like, it does not last. And so much of our world and our culture is built around dis like distracting, escaping, ignoring that reality. And we get these harsh moments where that's like lit up for us. And what happens is then we're anxious and depressed. And, and we, we seek to either escape or regain control. But this is plainly right in front of us. And Jesus says there is a life, right? He says, not just don't. Uh, store up treasures on earth where these things, they, they fail and they fall, they're destroyed, they're stolen. He says, do invest into eternity. Store up treasures in heaven. He says, there is a life. There is an eternity. And for you to hear, there is a purpose for your life. And you can invest in that now. That when you give, when you love when you pour into people rather than possessions, when you love ra rather than pursuing luxury, right, you are becoming rich. 
You're actually investing and putting those things out because what you do with money is an expression of your heart. If you can put that, that last verse of that section, I think it's verse uh, 21. For there, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. What you do with money is an expression of your heart. Or even stronger, the way that Jesus kind of words this is to say, if we could even say that even stronger, your heart will find its expression in what you do with money. So it's not just, I guess, that what you do with money is an, is an expression, but your heart finds its expression in what you do with money. As we hear Jesus' teaching about, hey, these things are going to fade, invest in eternal realities. Okay, we're like, sure. I mean, that makes sense. I'm, I'm for that. But then he, he says this, and what this provides us as we consider this language of worship and building our life and understanding, this gives us a diagnostic a way of testing. Where is my heart? What do I worship? What do I give my life to? This is where Jesus' teaching is just really strong here. He's literally asking, like, print out your bank statement, your credit card statement, your loans, like whatever you got, and like, I'll tell you where your heart is. Now, I was thinking about that for my own life. And it's like, if you were to print out all the stuff in my life and we're put it before you, and I'll share with you guys because we don't know each other super well. So this is great. Um, I, I think if you were to look at, at my finances, there would be an accurate depiction of the war that's going on in my soul. I think if you were to look at my finances, and, and I'm not, hopefully not patting myself on the back or taking rewards in heaven, I think you would see two things. And one of them would be that, there's a mission to my life. We, we, we give in our family to the church. We give uh, to missionaries overseas and the nations. We give a lot of money for our neighbors, and we host people in our home. And there's, like, there's a generosity that is at work in our life that I think if you were to print out our finances would, would be obvious, and, and you would see that. And I think for for. Me and my family, I think if you were to print all my money, the second thing you would see, where does our money go, is it goes to comfort. That's for us. So, like, we have five kids. I don't think I mentioned that. Um, and they're all little. So my oldest is seven, and they're crazy. And so, and so we, like, easy eating is, like, 80% of our budget. You know, where it's just like, uh, let's just grab food. Let's just grab food. Hey, let's just grab food. Hey, you want to grab food? Yeah, let's just grab food. Like, like, that's like, that's like the majority of our budget is in and out, right? And not even like good food. I mean, well, you know, it's great. That's not what I meant. Healthy. Uh, healthy food. Um, yeah, it's easy eating or uh, coffee. I can make coffee at home. I just love going to coffee shops. Uh, like every... I'm, I'm really, like, outing myself as a 30-year-old uh, male. I got really into golf uh, during COVID. Um, things with the kids, the most bloated part of our budget is, like, comfort, fun, ease, right? And as I think as the, I had to try to do a little gut check as I'm preparing this message is, is right now I think what we have been guilty at times is trying to build a lifestyle that we can't afford, uh, that is beyond our means. And, and I don't think we live crazy. Again, we have, with our kids, I, I can say that without, like, fear that you're going to judge me because most of you guys are like, no, I, I get that. Like, I would want to buy food too. And, and we would, it would be hard to judge us from, like, a human perspective and our spending. But here's, here's what, if I'm just being honest, what's at work in that as I'm doing this diagnostic on my life is that I haven't accepted my lot in life. I, I have five kids. We've got a house. We've got these things. And I want, like, I don't make enough money to afford the ease. And so I go into, occasionally, we've had to, like, work our way out of debt. Because it's like we're trying to live a life that God has not given to us. And we compare ourselves to others, wanting things and stuff and experiences, spending money that we don't have to get it. And when I run this diagnostic personally, I'm just trying to share with you guys how I've done this, right? I see that my heart is often not in a lifestyle that's generated and motivated by grace, but is actually occasionally and often uh, motivated by comparison and by I deserve, right? 
I deserve this. Man, this is hard. I deserve this. I deserve this. And that's over and over again. My heart finds its expression in where my money goes. Where your treasure is, there your, your heart is also. It's an act of worship. And in those moments when you look at my budget, you'd see a, a, an affection for Jesus, and you'd also see a pride that says, I deserve, that's at work in my finances. And, and you think about Jesus who says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's a kind of a, a famous teaching of Jesus. And you kind of apply that here, this idea that giving is an act of worship. And what he's saying is, look, you can raise your hands in song. You can shed tears. You could sing at the top of your lungs. But if you're building up treasures on earth, your heart is far from him. And that's where his teaching goes. It's this really like, cut and dry, black and white, like stark, somewhat offensive binary that Jesus gives is he's saying, hey, your, your heart finds its expression in what you do with your money, and there is a war for your worship. So it's not just saying giving is an act of worship. Okay, that's easy enough. We can understand that. And we can say, okay, cool. Let's go home. Let's go eat some food. But Jesus takes it deeper, and he says there is a war for your Worship, a direct competition for your heart. And his teaching goes on. If you have your Bible, skip a couple verses to verse 24. Jesus says this. No one can serve two masters. Since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. And that word money underneath that is this word, it's called mammon. And that word mammon is like personified wealth. It's, it's a god. So he, he's really getting to the idolatry, the worship of it. He's, he's saying you can't worship two gods at the same time. There's a god, the true god uh, from Deuteronomy 6, the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and then there, or strength. And there's, there's Another God of personified wealth, of possessions, of that, that is at work in our world. And he's saying, this is the place. He, he, out of all the things, he, he points and he says, this is where we need to draw our attention to. And well, let's just be honest as we read this. that The binary between these two things is so strong, it's almost like you're overstating it. You're overstating it. Like, hate is a strong word. And no one here, maybe, I don't, you know, I don't know all your stories, but no one's here like, man, I hate God today. Well, maybe. Uh, but there's not this, there's this, when we read that, that you can kind of self-reflect and say, certainly I don't hate God. And, and so I, I must be good. This isn't for me. I don't need to worry about this. But as we hear this teaching of Jesus, here's what I want to ask of you. Just to assume that Jesus isn't a fool, right? That he, like, knows the human condition. He speaks this on purpose, and actually, he speaks this word. If we were to study our first century Palestinian history, that, that the ec- economy, that the people he's speaking to are the bottom of the economic barrel. It's kind of an interesting like, lens on this. He's not speaking this to wealthy people. He's speaking this word to, to poor people. And so here's what I want to ask of you and me as we just even read this and understand this, that Jesus is painting this picture of a war of worship. And I want to say, hey, what if our starting place, what if your starting place, my starting place, when we hear these words, is to assume that this war is true of us? That we, that, that we are tempted to try and serve two masters. To try and divide our heart and give some to God, and reserve some for personified wealth. And I just know there's a temptation when we read these words and we hear it to say, that's not me, because I'm broke. Joke's on you, Jesus. Or God, I can't serve mammon if I wanted to, right? But let's just assume Jesus knows that, right? <laughs> and he spoke this for a reason. And so here's what I want to consider. Like this stark teaching, there's a war for your worship between God and this other God, Mammon. And 
how do we, like, what does it look like to actually serve mammon? How could you, how could you see that I'm serving mammon with my life? And I want to suggest to you it's a couple things. Serving mammon looks like oversaving because you're looking to money for security or power. When you oversave because you're looking to money for security or power. I say oversave because there is a wisdom to saving. If we're doing a more extensive money series, Proverbs talks about saving over and over again. So this idea of oversaving, but hear me on this, oversaving isn't a dollar amount. Because again, some of you are like, well, that's never been a problem for me. <laughs> like, I'm good. And I've never oversaved in my life. No, it, it's this idea of looking to wealth to protect you or to advance your status. And so that could be $100, $10, or $10 million. It's, it's the idea of, what does it look like to, to serve mammon? I don't even know what that means, but, but it means this. It's that you serve as a guard, enlisted in his army. And so you are alert and anxious and on the ready. You're on duty, ready to defend and fight. And your life is marked by fear and worry, always looking for what might come so that you can protect yourself. That's oversaving, looking to money for security and power. You're serving mammon. You're defending. You're in his army. And the other way that you might think of serving mammon is the opposite error. It's, it's overspending for comfort or to impress people and earn their acceptance. And again, and hopefully this is freeing. The Bible gives a picture. We're in Ecclesiastes in our church. It's been surprising. It gives a picture where I, I think you are free to spend. God, God has uh, given us this world. There are good things in this world, and they are gifts, and, and you can enjoy God's good gifts in this world. But the phrase here is this idea of overspending for comfort, right? Like, do you shop when you are sad? Or, or to impress people and earn their accept, acceptance, it's like check your Instagram or the stories you tell people. Do you, do you spend to compete or compare? Are there certain brands that you consume or wear because you're, it, it says something about you? My brother-in-law, um, he's 23. His, his car just like caught on fire last week. It was crazy. He's driving on the freeway. He's like, oh, this doesn't feel right. He pulled over, and within, like, seconds, his whole car is, like, on flames. He's, the, he's that guy, right? You're just driving by, like, what, what happened here? He's like, yeah, that's him. And so he got, uh, this past week, he got a new car. It's, it's a used car, but it's newer than mine, right? That's the key thing here. And uh, now, between my wife and I, we have, we have two perfectly fine cars, which makes us, like, some of the wealthiest people in the world and probably some of the most comfortable people in the history of the world by owning two cars. And yet he gets the new car and there's a part of me that's like, should I get a new car? Like, I mean, I don't know. Like you start thinking through, you, you look when, when someone else gets something, there's a part of you that, that does this comparison thing. Where like, should I, am I, am I missing something right now? And so you serve mammon when you let him shape your vision of the good life. When you define rich based off the quality of your neighbor's life. And so I would ask you, look at your life. Who or what is setting the expectations of your life? And every one of you has expectations for your life. But you never, like, how often do we take that step further back and say, well, who is setting those expectations? Where am I getting those expectations from? I don't serve mammon. I serve God. But who is setting the vision for what is the good life? Where is that coming from? See, Jesus is drawing our attention. And he's, like, shining the light. and saying, hey, you might not have known this, but there is this other God that's in our world, and his name is Mammon or Money. And he's at war for your heart. And so be careful that, he says, no one can serve two masters. And that's where the, real, the, the binary comes in. He's saying, no one. Like, he's trying to go, well, what are the exceptions to this? It's like, no, no one, right? There, there aren't exceptions to this. 
And the lie that you and I believe is that I, I, I can manage both. Or I don't, like, hate, love, like, these are really strong words. I'm kind of like maybe like slightly indifferent or occasionally drawn one to the other, right? So, and I've had to wrestle with this as I'm preaching this. I'm, I'm coming in, I'm like, man. So, like, gut honesty as I'm preparing this message on money and giving, one of the honest questions I'm asking is, like, how can I challenge people? How can I challenge a stored church to give while also not challenging myself too hard? <laughs> and I feel this rising impulse. As I'm preparing, I feel this rising impulse in myself and this potential objection from you that when talking about the dangers of money and saying no exception, no one can serve two masters, that, that there, this impulse that comes in me and a potential objection from you that's, well, DJ, uh, money isn't bad. Love of money. That's what's bad. See, it's a worship issue. You, you said that, right? So money isn't bad. Like, I'm not, like, worshiping money is bad. I don't, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I don't worship money. And it's like, yeah, okay, like, right. You're, you're totally right on that. I'm totally right on that. But maybe we're, like, a little too quick to point that out. Then we start talking about money, and we start talking about in the realm of worship. We're like, oh, that's almost, like, it's almost easy for us to say, oh, yeah, money is a worship issue. I don't worship money. I worship Jesus. But then you run the diagnostic. You look at your life. You take the hard look at who's shaping your expectations, and you start walking this through, and Jesus is stark binary of saying no one, and it's like, that's a little too intense. That's, that, that can't be me. And maybe the impulse that we have to make the distinction between, like, money and love of money and how our quickness to that reveals something about the state of our souls. And I read Jesus' words here, and I'm left asking this question. Not do I love or worship money, but I'm left asking this question, DJ, when will you learn to hate? Because that's what it says, right? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Like, when will I not just be like, no, I don't worship money, right? No, but when will I actively hate what money can do to me? That's a different question. When will I begin to abhor, like, like, like with a, a repulsion within me, how stuff and possessions can grab a hold of my heart? It's estimated that within the next 25 years, more than $68 trillion will transfer generations. We've lived through like the biggest economic boom in like the history of the world, and people are getting older. Uh, so, so $68 trillion in the next 25 years is going to change hands from generations to generations. I read that, and my first thought was, hmm. I wonder if any of that will find its way to me. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I have grandparents. I don't know what. I have no idea their financial situation. I was like, wow, they were alive during that time, baby. Wow. But my first thought was, I wonder if any of that will find its way to me and not. Okay, I need to disciple my kids. I need to prepare my heart. Like, what it? Like, what if this something were to come my way? It's almost like a tsunami wave is coming our way to crush and destroy. And instead of heading to higher ground, we start putting on like our swim trunks. We're like, but I'm a really disciplined swimmer. It's like, no, you don't understand how this works. And, I, and I'm not, I think when we talk about giving as worship, I don't want us just saying, I don't love money. I don't worship money. But instead, as Jesus points out, there's a, a, a war for your worship, a direct competition for your heart between competing gods. And so to, in serving Jesus, in loving Jesus, in worshiping Jesus, it ought to produce an active hate. For, for what money can do to our hearts, what possessions and how that can grab a hold and shape the narrative and the story of what we're living for and, and are about. When will we learn to hate what it can do to your soul? And so the question I want to like leave us through, and I'm gonna, I'll walk through the, the last bit of this Matthew 6 section is, okay, how? How can I cultivate a love for God 
and a corresponding hatred of mammon. And here's just a couple of things. I'll try to move through, the, through these fairly quick. But I think first it's to, to meditate or think about your own death. I'll admit I'm borrowing from Ecclesiastes as the series that I'm preaching through right now. But it, I think it's also here in verse 25 as you keep reading. Jesus begins his, one of his most famous teachings right after this money section. And I want you to see that these two things are connected. He says this, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Our life is full of worry and anxiety and fear about our, our life. And, I'm, and I think we just hey, think about your death from time to time. You live your life trying to make it, trying to get by, trying to provide. And the word from Ecclesiastes is that idea of havel, the try and grab it and it slips through your fingers. And you, you're ignoring and escaping that that's the reality of our world. So anxious about life, what you will eat, what you will drink. And what I want to kind of teach you is just that you're going to die. There's a guy in our church, he's 25, and he just got diagnosed with uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's a, uh, a cancer, and he's uh, stage two. And he's sharing this with me, and he's just a guy that's been living anxious about his job, about his living situation. He's still living with his parents and his place in life. He's single. He had a, a girlfriend that broke up with him, and then another girl he's pursuing that didn't work out. And he, he just has this, like, deep depression and now a cancer diagnosis on top of it. And as he's sharing this, I'm like, my mind's just, like, hyperdrive. Like, how am I going to counsel him? How am I going to share Jesus? How is this going to help shape him? And here's what he said. I wrote down, he says, he's, listen, ha having struggled with depression for nearly a decade, for the first time when I got this diagnosis, I actually felt I could breathe. He shared this with our church. He said, it, it's allowed me to see the havel, the nothingness of my anxiety and give clarity about life. Actually, th thinking about his, his death freed him from the, all the, the serving mammon and trying to get and the anxiety of the on guard and the readiness. We, we just realized, I, I, I'm going to die. Maybe not now, but just like whew, some of that dissipated. Another woman in our church, her father just died this past summer, and she's the executor of his will. And going through all his stuff and going to different family members and friends. And there's nothing that's really come to them or that they've wanted. And they've got this... Her dad had this like really nice, I'm going to show my ignorance and I'm not even going to try to describe it, a really nice motorcycle. So if you're a motorcycle person, sorry, I have no more details than that. <laughs> but it was really nice. That's all, that's all I know. And uh, her husband, Jared's like, hey, we should, we, should, we should keep it, like, which is hilarious. You don't know Jared, but he's one of the most timid, safety-conscious people in the world. He's like, hey, let's have a motorcycle. Right, let's just, what the heck, right? Let's just go for it. And um, he says, it, it's the right thing to do. You're, it's what your dad would want. And I was talking with this, this woman, and she was kind of sharing her process through that. And she said, Mama, it's what my dad would want. And he said, he said but, but from what perspective? Like maybe on earth, right? That, that's what he would want. He said, yeah, I love this motorcycle. But like, like if my dad could speak today, what would he say? He, he wouldn't give a rip. He wouldn't care about the motorcycle. Like, like it, think about your death and, and how that shapes your perspective on possessions and mammon. Thinking on your death helps you hate mammon because you realize it's dumb. And it, it helps you uh, with that desire to store treasures here on earth and instead to, to treasure them in heaven. The second thing Jesus teaches is to consider nature and design. This is verses 26 through 30. He says this. Consider the birds of the sky. He just starts pointing out at nature. Very Jesus-y. He's like, hey, just, you see the birds, right? They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any one of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. Look, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, just here today and just thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? 
Jesus appeals to nature. He just starts pointing out at birds and grass and all this stuff. He says, look, God sustains, God cares. His providence and his love for this creation and this world is just so clearly on display. And, and we try and create like God has created, and all that we create is worlds of anxiety that constantly need updates. And, and God's just like the grass, the birds, they just find their way. And the point isn't to be like, look at nature, look, you're resilient like the birds, right? It, it's a point about the character of God. He's saying, look, see God's tenderness, see God's care, his providence, his wisdom. Whereas mammon, you need to create, you need to provide, you need to produce. You're worthless if you don't create wealth. Nature points to God and to your worth as an image bearer and says, you have value in his eyes. He's got you. He says, look look to nature. How do you cultivate love for God, worship for God, and and, and a corresponding hate for mammon? You think about your death. What what are you doing? You, You look at nature and you see God's just tender and kind hand. And that's the last thing is this, is, is then to know your relationship to this God. Look at verse 31. He says this. So don't worry saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. What's your relationship to God? How does Jesus describe God as Father? Multiple times, Father, Father. Jesus invites you to share his own relationship with the Father. Even to the point of death, God raised Jesus up from the dead. And he's saying, when you entrust yourself to him, when you worship him, when you follow him, he's got you. He is your Father. There is no place where the love of the Father will not find and provide, will not rescue and redeem. And Jesus reveals to us that God is not a distant deity who's waiting to be appeased by you, who's kind of silently observing you with a kind of quiet displeasure, waiting to see what you will do. Instead, he describes him as a Father, Provision, love, care, this is what he has for you. This is the beauty of our God, that that yes, he alone is God. He is alone is worthy of worship, but he's also a God who draws our hearts to worship. So you kind of go back to the the beginning. This, This isn't a guilt thing. When we say, hey, giving is worship. What you do with money is worship. It's not like now, son, you know that you should be giving your money and not serving mammon. Right? And you're like, yeah, Dad, I know. And honestly, at first glance, it might seem that way. This is, Jesus' teaching is like really bold. It's a warning passage. It's this or that. Treasures on earth, treasures in heaven. Where's your heart at? God, mammon. You can't serve two masters. And you're hearing this, and there's a party that's like, it's, it's a little overwhelming to, to hear this and not be faced with this kind of binary and be like, like I don't know. And that's, that's how warning passages in the Bible, and for us that preach the gospel of God's grace, it almost seems like this is intention with the message on grace maybe a little bit, where it's this grace, hey, that motivates your giving, and that's like, but don't you dare serve man. And you're like, okay, I'm not. Like, <laughs> what's going on here? here? Here's how warning passages in the scriptures work and how Jesus' teaching here works. It works like smelling salts. You guys know what smelling salts are? That's what you, when someone's fainted or they're fainting, you, you put them in, it brings them to life, brings them awake. And if you take smelling salts, right, and, and, you, and you put them, not to be like crude, I'm sorry, but if you like put them in the nose of a dead person, what's going to happen? Nothing. No, nothing's going to happen at all. They're dead, right? Uh, but, but you take smelling salts, and, you, and you, you put them under the nose of someone who's alive, even if they are, and this is the purpose of them, even if they are fainted, even if they're weak, even if they're not strong, right? Not, it, it brings to life. And, and if you were to take smelling salts right now, you'd sniff them, right? It'd be like, you set your brain on fire, right? You're, you're coming alive. And that's how Jesus' teaching works here, these warning passages. For those of you who have tasted his life, his grace, who know the beauty of God, when, when he teaches and, and brings this before us, it's like, it, it's clarity. 
It's like, oh, man, it's like getting smacked in the face. Like, we're like, okay, now I can see with vision that I was cloudy before, but now I know what life is about. It lifts up the veil to see the ugly God of mammon, the inability for that God to produce what he promises, and instead shows the gracious hand of the Father who provides what you need and knows what you need. The God who delights to give good gifts to his children. That's our God. And so when we hear that, we kind of like, yes, God, I am yours. I don't need to worry. I don't need to be anxious and defensive. I don't need to let my vision be shaped by someone else. You have been nothing but kind to me. Whatever you want, I'm yours. I trust you. And that's my prayer for for you, for your church, for my church, for us as a community of churches throughout Southern California, that we would, as we sang earlier, all the earth will shout your praise. That is our destiny, that we will see and live with that sort of clarity where we know what life is about. And Jesus is saying, listen, your, your money and your stuff and your possessions, that's the clearest place where you're displaying that you know what life is about. And I'm not saying this to guilt trip you or make you kind of like, you suck or anything like that. It's to be a Hey, you guys see this, right? Like, yeah, yeah, okay, let's go. Like Jesus has called you. He's awakened you. He's shown you his love. He's the father who provides. You don't need to run after these things. You don't need to give yourself to these things. You can come to the father. You can trust. And that way of living, your thoughts, your desires, your eyes, your hands, your stuff, That's worship. And that's what we're called to give to our God. Let me pray for us. And I'll invite the the worship team to help us respond. God, would you do that holy work in us, that smelling salts work in restored church? Just a clarity about what life is about, that life is worship, and not to so easily excuse ourselves and say, no, no, we're good. But instead, would you wake us up to see your gracious hand to expose the lies of possessions and money, and to trust you with all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.